So hello, everyone. Welcome to our audio roundtable about teamwork in medicine. I'm Lisa Rosenbaum, a national correspondent for the Journal and a cardiologist at Brigham and Women's Hospital. And I'm delighted to have the opportunity to talk to all of you today about teamwork. I'm going to start by introducing each of you. Neil Shaw is an assistant professor of obstetrics at Harvard Medical School, and he's based at the Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center. And he also directs the Delivery Decisions Initiative at Ariadne Labs. Amy Edmondson is a professor of leadership and management at Harvard Business School and has really written extensively on the topic of teamwork, including a recent book entitled The Fearless Organization, Creating Psychological Safety in the Workplace for Learning, Innovation, and Growth. And Tor Sunt is a professor of surgery and the chief of cardiac surgery at Massachusetts General Hospital. He's past president of the American Association for Thoracic Surgery, and he has a research interest in patient safety, medical error, and surgical decision-making. So I first want to begin by thanking each of you. You each played a pivotal role in helping me thinking about teamwork and really in shaping the series. And because each of you, I think, brings a unique expertise to the topic, I think it'd be helpful for the audience to hear a little more about how you became interested in teamwork and what you're doing in your specific role to foster better teamwork. So Neil, why don't we start with you? Sure. My foray into this came from my role as an obstetrician and thinking about the problem of C-sections. There is massive underuse and also massive overuse of C-sections across the world, and it's essentially a timing failure. And just trying to understand what's underneath it. And like so many clinical decisions in medicine, the decision to do a C-section is sort of in the shade of gray. You know, the clinical guidelines only get you so far. And after that, there's a lot of tacit decision making. And along the way, I sort of realized that, you know, you have to entrust really good clinicians to make decisions in the trenches. But hopefully they're doing it with all of the information that should be available to them. And usually it lives in the brain of multiple people in the room, including the mom herself, as well as the nurse and other people who are there. And just trying to think about how to make it more reliable for those people to share the information in their brains. Amy? Well, I've been studying teams for over 20 years, and I guess I first got interested in them and indeed first studied them in the hospital setting because it seemed to me that teams were the engine of organizational learning and change. In other words, individuals learn and help change things, but the work itself is so increasingly interdependent that if you can't understand more about how teams and teamwork operates, you can't really understand how to help organizations change as they must in a changing world. And Tor? Boy, it goes back many, many years. Um, Cardiac surgery in particular, I think, brings the teamwork into focus. If you look at the practice of cardiac surgery, it's highly complex and getting more complex. It depends on teamwork preoperatively in terms of communication with cardiology. We're probably as much or more wed to our medical colleagues than any other surgical discipline where you really have to work as a team with cardiology. And certainly in a cardiac surgical operating room, I think that there must be 10 or 12 people in a cardiac surgical operating room when you're performing a procedure, and that demands teamwork in a very focused, clear, bounded way. That space, which is that operating room, really how well that functions depends tremendously on teamwork. So it's very obvious when you do and do not have effective teamwork. So... Much of the series is about problems in teamwork, sort of where we've gone astray in medicine. The one person I interviewed, and this didn't actually make it into the series, said something to me like, maybe given the constraints of modern medicine, our teamwork is actually really good. 
And I want to talk to you about whether or not there's some truth to this. Is there maybe this inevitable trade-off between how specialized we are and how many people are involved in the care of any given patient and how well we can work together? You know, is there some sort of finite capacity among humans to work together well? And actually, maybe we're doing a good job in medicine. I don't see it as a trade-off. I see it as a challenge to be managed. The reality is healthcare is incredibly specialized and specialization is deep and patient care is interdependent. So what that says to me is two things. One, we have to find ways to do this better and better. Two, yes, we shouldn't be tough on ourselves because the challenge is inherently very great indeed. In other words, we can be understanding of why things so often go wrong or fall short of our aspirations, but that is a different thing than concluding it's a trade-off, you know, that we can either have excellence or teamwork. I'm not ready to go there. I agree. My clinical environment isn't nearly as complex as TOR's, but it's been pretty similar for probably ever. Uh, Homo sapiens have always sort of needed help to give birth. So there's automatically a team there, no matter what. And so one of the things that's really striking is certainly I forgive clinicians for the challenges of being in the trenches, being in a high-intensity, safety-critical environment where there are real consequences. But we have never really tried to think about how to make communication and teamwork reliable in these settings. In obstetrics, there's no objective way of knowing how big a baby's head is until it's out. So at 3 a.m., if a woman's been pushing for two hours and then three hours and then four hours, you just have to kind of make a call. And the longer you wait, the higher the odds of a normal delivery, but the longer you wait, the higher the odds of a complication for the mom or the baby. And that's sort of the perfect case for when you would want good communication and teamwork between the mom and the delivering provider and anyone else who might be in the room, the supporting person, the nurse, the anesthesiologist. But until now, we've never figured out what are the things that ought to be reliably shared amongst those people and how can we go about doing that in an organized and efficient way. Can I push you a little bit on that? Because I think that's where I struggled in the series is sort of what does that look like figuring it out? Like, do we do this empirically? Is it about a cultural change? So talk a little bit about how you go about that. Well, in our case, we just made a deliberate attempt to define what it is that ought to be shared. So, and then we created a tool to do it. So I think, you know, in some cases, checklists and things like checklists can be effective communication needs, particularly when you want people to be more reliable at doing the things that they already thought they were doing, but not doing reliably for every patient every time. But checklists require natural pause points and labor and delivery doesn't really have one. So in our case, we took a dry erase whiteboard, which exists in most patient rooms everywhere in the hospital, but are mostly for nurses to talk to themselves. Uh, and instead, we just made it larger so that everyone in the room could see it, including the mom herself, and we simplified it so that everyone could understand it, including the mom and her family. And we just defined the four things that we thought should be part of the communication every time. And we anecdotally, and we're just trialing this now, and I think you also commented on the difficulty of studying teamwork scientifically and tying it to outcomes, but we are anecdotally seeing higher rates of uncomplicated vaginal deliveries, which is what everyone is trying to maximize, as well as increases in just basic dignity in the care that we're providing. I don't know if this is a part of what you were getting at in your question or if this is a subtle background piece of it, but one of the things that comes through in the human factors community is answering the question, is the human a hazard or a hero? And much more often, the human is a hero. So yes, we should pursue the teamwork. We shouldn't beat ourselves up a whole lot, though. We're, we actually are doing extremely well. It is incredible how well we do, given the complexity of what we do. So we shouldn't feel bad about it, but it also can always be better. So given that 
I mean, I understand, Neil, where you're really sort of studying this. And obviously, Amy, you've spent a lot of time thinking about this from an organizational psychology standpoint and really conducting, you know, empirical work in this field. Do you, all of you see places where you think that teamwork is actually working well? Where do you think it's best? And are those places where we can sort of model further efforts? Or is the nature of teamwork so diverse that each one is an entity unto itself? Meaning, for instance, like the decision to go to the OR and the people involved require a very different type of teamwork than the operation itself. I think the aspiration of research is to identify the conceptually common factors amidst the necessarily specific and unique attributes of different situations. So every delivery is different and there are certain factors that they will have in common. And by identifying those, you know, it's possible to focus attention on ways to increase the factors that help to improve the processes that might maybe routinely get uh, off kilter. So in Neil's story with the whiteboard, I hear one element of the absolute crucial strategy for improving teamwork, which is find the structures, whether those are checklists or whiteboards or routine questions, NBAR, that we ask each other Finding the structures that we can commit to that enable more effective teamwork is an absolute crucial part of the solution. And then the other part is leadership, training clinicians in being good leaders of teamwork. And that includes such simple things as asking more questions and asking good questions and guiding that reflective process. So it's both, right? You need the structures, you need the leadership, and we can get better and better at this. There is variance. And implicit in your question, Lisa, is, you know, is this just always necessarily hard or do you see some places doing it better than others? And the answer is we definitely see some examples of doing it better than others. Tor, as a leader of a division who thinks a lot about this challenge, can you talk a little bit about how you as a leader set a tone that is conducive to better teamwork? Sure. I try to role model what I think is appropriate behavior, but we've also instituted some structural pieces that I support. So for example, in the parallel to your whiteboard is in our operating rooms, an important aspect of the way we do briefings is that they're participatory briefings. So you can call it a checklist-driven briefing or whatever, but the briefing is set up so that all members of the team speak up. So everybody participates. I think it helps to start to create the team in the moment right there. So for example, we use the heart-lung machine. When we go on bypass to do an operation, the perfusionist, who's the individual who runs the heart-lung machine, I don't tell the perfusionist what I want for a flow rate and what the target temperature is and what the estimated crit is and so on and so forth. They tell me. And that way, from the very beginning of the operation, there's a conversation that's going on. And I'm listening to them, so I hope that it indicates to them that I am interested in what they say. I value their engagement. And so I think that's an important aspect. Now, having said that, are all of the surgeons in the group equally committed to that? And do they buy into that? Um, Not entirely. You can't exactly mandate it. You can role model it, and peer pressure can help to encourage it. But to be honest with you, some are more into it than others. And when you ask the question, do we see places where it works well, I don't know if comparing different industries is as useful as saying that there are certainly some operating rooms that are better than other operating rooms. Mm -hmm. There are certainly some delivery rooms that are better than other delivery rooms. Within any discipline, there are certainly high and, and low outliers, I suspect. 
first, I want to wholeheartedly agree with what Amy was saying, because in the course of our work, one of the questions that we asked are, what are the things that should be communicated during every labor assessment for every woman every time? And that isn't a question that had really been asked before. And it led to a fascinating discovery process and merely defining that for an activity that's been going on for millennia was really, really instructive. So I did want to say that. And then to the point I think that Tor was making, there is a good amount of variation. And one of the things that I think that you highlight in the series is that teamwork and communication almost seems like the ultimate artisanal craft. It often happens behind closed doors and you know, we revere our colleagues who are very good at it. We often have a limited window into it once we're past our training. But there ought to be some basic standards. I mean, as a surgeon myself, I have colleagues who have much more dexterity than I have. But there is a standard of skill that's necessary for me to be able to do a cesarean and the other surgeries I perform. But for communication and teamwork, I don't think we've really defined that basic standard yet. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. And I think that as one of the things that I struggled with in writing this, especially in the last essay, which was really about this sort of diffusion of responsibility and this issue when no one is taking charge is whether this is like a systems problem, is this a team problem, or is this an individual problem? Which really is sort of the crux of something we grapple with in medicine all the time, right? Is it the person or is it the system? And I can't think of an issue that more embodies that dichotomy than teamwork. And I think as we all talk about this, because all of you have navigated this in your work in various ways, but how much of this is really in the end about training our individuals to sort of be kind to one another, to reach out to one another, to listen to one another. And is that a teachable skill or do we need to be thinking about who we select in the first place if we really care about this? I'm going to take a strong stance on the teachable skill side because I maybe it's a bias I have because of the work I do. This has to be teachable. It is teachable. In some sense, we've learned the other skill. You know, we've learned the skill of trying to act like we know everything or trying to look like we're completely in charge and have all the answers. We didn't have that as children. We learned how to do that. And similarly, we can learn how to remind ourselves to be curious and aware that we don't know everything and that we need that input. I think teamwork runs the risk of diffusion of responsibility, but it doesn't have to come with the territory. What has to come with the territory is really clear, high-quality communication so that we know who's on what and who's accountable for what and that we're sort of accountable to each other and, of course, mostly accountable to the patient. And we recognize that this takes, as you put it, because it's true, skill. It takes skill. It takes diligence. It takes discipline. Yeah, I'm going to add into that. Lisa, when you ask the question, is it the system or the individual, I think you're missing another element, which is the cultural context of both. So both exist within a cultural context. And the skills are teachable, but they're only teachable if our culture expresses that we value them. So surgeons, surgical culture, values since the time of Halstead, meticulous hemostasis, gentle handling of tissues, etc., so on and so forth. These are things that we learn throughout our entire training, that these are things we value. But what we in the past have not been taught to value is communication skills. So uh, Steve Ewell at the Brigham has this whole system around teaching non-technical skills for surgeons. It's uh, developed with the Royal College of Physicians and Surgeons in Scotland. 
They've also got a system for non-technical skills for anesthesia and so on and so forth. So there is a curriculum and a methodology and a way of evaluating those skills, just as Neil and I can evaluate how well someone follows the curve of the needle when they pronate and supinate as they're suturing up an organ. But the first step is that we have to establish a culture that values that, and then our trainees will see that that's important, just like how well you tie a knot or how straight a line you cut. You point out, Lisa, in the series that something like 70% of adverse events fundamentally are rooted in communication failures. And so it is kind of remarkable that while we have ways of thinking about pedagogy and curricula and skills training for pronation and supination, we don't necessarily for just being good teammates. And one of the things that we found in our work is that the way that you get from a whiteboard and a team huddle to improving rates of uncomplicated vaginal deliveries is through surfacing and deconflicting different points of view. Like, that's the mechanism of action there. What do you mean by that? Well, I mean, um, so just briefly, this is what the whiteboard is. It only has four parts. The first part is you name every member of the team and you put them on first. And that's just to create the permission and opportunity to say something later if you need to for every member of the team, in addition to knowing their names. Then there's a part where the mom gets to put down the things that she can uniquely tell you, which include preferences and symptoms, but also things that are neither that exist in our world, like energy to push, which is really important, but not really a symptom. Uh, Then there's a part where you articulate the plan. Then there's a part where you make a commitment to when the team is going to get back together. Without really prescribing when it's going to happen, you just say the team has to commit to when it's going to happen. It can be a window of time. It can be event-based. It can be anything like that. That's the whiteboard. It doesn't really prescribe specific communication strategies. It doesn't prescribe specific phrases or techniques or even particular types of clinical decisions or protocols. It's just process-oriented. But through doing that and getting everyone to talk, The theory is that you get different and better decisions than you would if people were just sort of making decisions tacitly. And what underlies that are differing points of view coming into alignment. And that was sort of our theory, is that when you're operating in the gray zones of medicine, the best way to get to accuracy is to just generate more data. So I suppose that the point is that even in the absence of being able to get every individual to be an amazing communicator and teammate, just having some base level of process seems to make a difference. I just couldn't agree more. It's that structure. I suppose it takes leadership to put structures in place, but that structure goes such a long way toward creating better decisions. And I think that just sounds like a superb structure. And I'll just add the little bit that emphasizes the point about context and cultural context. Part of that cultural context has to be a sense of psychological safety because all too often in medicine when things go wrong, someone did know or suspect or wonder about something but just didn't feel it was appropriate or acceptable to speak up. So getting that psychological safety in place is mission critical to doing the structures well. So Amy, this is what you've spent so long studying and obviously are sort of the international expert in psychological safety. Can you talk a little bit about how we might foster psychological safety in medicine? Because I can see that it's bad, but I don't know how to make it better. When listening to this conversation, it becomes almost impossible to believe that psychological safety isn't strong and prevalent throughout medicine because these two clinical leaders are so spectacular. The calm, clear model that you are providing is exactly what's needed. So what are the elements of what they're doing? Number one, be clear 
about what we're up against, right? This is inherently challenging, complex, customized work. If you have challenging, complex, customized work, it goes without saying that anyone present may see something that others miss. In other words, the invitation for voice has to be explicit in how you're describing or framing the situation. So that sort of sets the stage. And then the second thing I already said, which is ask questions. I mean, it's very hard for someone to hold back when they have been asked an explicit question. What did you see? What are you thinking? It feels mighty awkward to remain mute if you're being asked a question. And quite often clinicians and other leaders think, oh yeah, if someone has something to say, they'll say it. Nothing could be further from the truth. That invitation needs to be made explicit. And of course, the third thing, which is so important, is you absolutely must respond in a productive manner. You know, when someone calls you in the middle of the night with a question, you say, almost automatically, you say, thank you so much for calling, even if that's not what you're thinking. You take a deep breath and you force yourself to say it. Or, you know, someone brings you bad news. You don't shoot the messenger. You say, thank you for that clear line of sight, right? Now, what are we going to do? Like, roll up your sleeves. We're in it. You've got to resist that human tendency to shut down the messenger because then you're not going to get the next message. Yeah, so I'm a simple rules guy. I'm too old to change my personality. So one of my simple rules that I hope I adhere to is that whenever someone points something out, even if they're wrong, I think you backwalled that stitch. I think that this is such and such or whatever. I try to always say, no, but thank you for paying attention. It just becomes a simple rule. And then whenever somebody speaks up, if you do that, and when I talk to other surgeons about it, I suggest that as just a simple rule. I love that because it's also, it's thank you for paying attention. And then, of course, you do have both the opportunity and the obligation to further teach. We all need and deserve feedback. So having offered the small thanks, we then go on to provide additional information or context or wisdom that is available to you and needs to be made available to them. Well, the only thing maybe I have to add here that goes right along with all of this was in working with Bill Berry, who is a colleague of Atul Gawande's and all of us at Ariadne Labs and worked very hard on developing the surgical safety checklist and implementing it across the world. You know, the first step of the checklist is that everyone has to introduce themselves to each other. And I remember when the checklist was still first being rolled out and I was a brand new medical student and just enjoying that I had a chance to just say who I was in the room, um, but not fully appreciating what was happening. And what Bill told me at one point was that, you know, the point of that step isn't just so that people know each other's names. It's so that from then on, everyone has both the permission and the opportunity to say something later. And to me, that's what psychological safety is. Having spoken once. Yes, it's so true. It's so powerful. Yeah, that's why we do our briefings in a participatory way. I had the good fortune to work with a human factor scientist at my previous institution, and I remember presenting a particularly disastrous case, and then we had discussion with the audience, and in the audience was one of the people who'd been responsible for the crew resource management for one of the airlines, and we were discussing why is it so hard to speak up when there's a problem, and he stood up and said, we've quit trying to get people to speak up when there's a problem because you can't get people to speak up when there's a problem. You have to get them to speak up when there's not a problem. And then when a problem arises, they'll speak up. So that's the whole idea of, of initiating a conversation from the beginning of the case. So in researching the series, I read a lot about other industries and how they've approached teamwork. And one industry that has gotten a lot of press is Google for its quest to build the perfect team. And Amy, I'm sure you know all about this because 
one of the key ingredients that they found after they hired a bunch of organizational psychologists and invested a lot of money was that one of the key ingredients is psychological safety. And I want to talk a little bit about whether a similar undertaking is possible in medicine. I mean, first of all, we'd obviously have to muster the resources, but also medicine's a different beast, right? Like the type of decision making is so diverse. Our teams are so diverse. You know, how do we think about approaching this empirically? Is that feasible? Because I I really think that to get people in medicine to pay attention, you need data. Well, I don't know if this is the question or if it even helps, but there's a tension in the notion of psychological safety that I think operates across clinical domains where there is a necessary hierarchy in medicine in every domain. And a lot of psychological safety requires a flattening of hierarchy in order to facilitate safe communication. So crew resource management and its application to labor and delivery is something that we believe has improved if not safety itself, at least psychological safety in our labor floors, which is basically a structured briefing among every person on the entire labor floor about every single patient who's there. And what it does is it creates a shared mental model for everybody who's on the floor and all of the staff as well. But then fundamentally when decisions have to be made, particularly when there's urgency or potential conflict, there is a hierarchy that exists in tension with that. I would agree with the tension. I would not agree that there's an inherent contradiction. So in medicine and in other settings as well, hierarchy is here to stay. That is not a bad thing in and of itself. What matters is how hierarchy is handled. And there are better and worse ways to handle hierarchy. And we've been talking already about some of the better ways, the asking of questions, the providing of the whiteboard that's going to make it simpler for someone to actually speak up with something they saw. So hierarchy puts a special burden on those higher in the hierarchy to ensure that others' voices can be heard. But it doesn't make it impossible to create psychological safety. In fact, some of the greatest work is done in hierarchical settings where roles are clear, but ideas can come from anywhere. But Amy, you touched on something that I think needs to be emphasized, which is that it's the responsibility, I think I heard you say, it's the responsibility of the leader or the person at the apex of the hierarchy. It's their responsibility to make sure that the others feel safe. And I think that we're not taught that in medicine either. I think we're not taught from an early age that it is our responsibility to provide that for our team, the way we're taught to pronate and supinate and all those other things. So I think to finish, I would just like to talk a little bit more about where we go from here. And again, I keep returning to this idea of empiricism because I think it's important to medicine and it's something I struggled with writing the series is sort of what disciplines do you combine? Do we use the metrics that we're accustomed to, you know, outcomes like death, length of stay, patient satisfaction, or do we need to sort of completely reimagine how we even collect outcomes when we think about whether or not teams are working together effectively? So I'd like to talk a little bit about that. Sure, yes. I mean, I think you rightly point out that it is a surprisingly nascent science of trying to apply ways of improving teamwork and communication in medicine in ways that are empirically shown to make a difference. And it requires a rethink, I think, of every step along the pathway from what the appropriate metrics are to even how you conduct the experiments in the field. And so, you know, we found in the context of our trial, we've had to be creative in all of those ways. One of the things I think is important, though, is that often there's a long pathway between the change that you want to make and the ultimate outcome that you want to see. And I think in medicine, sometimes we skip over the multiple steps along that pathway. 
In this particular case, there is a fairly clear logic model that one can draw from a failure of communication to ultimately what was happening there, whether it was lack of information, misinformation, whatever it was, to the chain of events that leads to the outcome. And I think one of the things that we could be more thoughtful about is just trying to map those pathways out as part of our empirical plans and studying it. I think that's a great point. And I'll just add that another thing to keep in mind, because of the complexity of care processes and medical processes, is that it's helpful to get empirical data on comparable units, right? So if you're studying intensive care units, try to get a reasonably good-sized data set if you want to test a hypothesis. A single unit can be a good way to go deeply into a single process to understand and illuminate it better. But you don't want to compare ICUs to a medical floor or to a clinic or to a cardiac surgery operating room. So I think it's possible to learn from naturally occurring variants as long as you're comparing apples to apples. Well, here's another complexity to this, is that in empiricism, we often treat context as a contaminant. And in communication and teamwork and human behavior, context is everything. And I think that's actually fundamentally one of the challenges here. In the trial that I'm running, even though we're able to hold the domain fixed, there are so many things that we can't. The team that comes together to take care of a woman in labor comes together randomly for every woman every time. So there's no way of fielding a study without training every single clinician in how to do this. And uh, you can't even fix the operating room because nurses and patients get assigned kind of semi-randomly to different rooms. And so this is a trial where we're only in four hospitals, but it involves hundreds of clinicians and tens of thousands of patients and ends up becoming enormously complex. And one of our challenges is just being able to capture all of that rich context while also trying to be empirical and be clear about what we're controlling and what we're not and what our aims are. So what are you measuring? Well, we're measuring a safety component, which we're rolling up into uncomplicated vaginal delivery rates, which ends up being the sort of flip side of a C-section rate. We're looking for other types of adverse events as secondary outcomes. And we're starting to think about how we measure patient dignity, which I think is different from patient satisfaction. Often patient experience is thought of as customer satisfaction. That's not really what it's about. It's fundamentally about dignity. And we struggled with this. Uh, we did a study about leadership behaviors with Sarah Singer from the School of Public Health. And if you try to satisfy Koch's postulates with this, it's just not going to happen. I mean, it's sort of an epistemological problem that you've got to deal with. So we ended up measuring perceptions of leadership by the team. And I can tell you that many of the surgeons said, well, that's not real leadership. And then you sort of scratch a little deeper and you, well, you know, how your team perceives you as a leader, maybe that is a pretty good metric of leadership. But to try and connect those behaviors with sternal wound infection rates or with length of stay or mortality rate after coronary bypass or such, it's just not going to happen. It's true. It's not going to. So that's where you need to have two kinds of research, right? One kind is the qualitative kind that illuminates processes and how things might, you know, to develop a plausible connection and theory for why, say, infection rates or post-surgical outcomes might be influenced by some of these things. And the other kind is where you get very big data sets and try to make these connections. Now, you've always got to find measures that are not extremely rare because those are just thankfully sufficiently rare that they never make a good statistical variable. So you need some other proxy, some process proxy. And you know, this is probably a conversation we can't have fully in the time allotted, but I think it's a really important and wonderful challenge for people like me and people like you to work on together. 
Yeah, I think in medicine, we need to get more comfortable with the qualitative studies. And uh, since this is sponsored by the New England Journal, I'll say that we need our editors to be comfortable <laughs> with publishing things that don't necessarily have p-values. That's one of the challenges, is how to get this kind of work out into the medical field, because the majority of the literature in this is published in journals that physicians don't read. Well, that doesn't help. I'll grant that there may be a standard p-value that folks want to see, but you know, I mentioned that we're measuring some of the outcomes that are all the way to the right, like the, the outcomes. And as Amy said, it's important to choose ones that are not rare. And it turns out cesareans are the most common surgery performed on humans, and there's a ton of variation. So the signal-to-noise issue there is less challenging than it would be for other types of outcomes that are much more rare, like mortality, um, which is also a problem that we think our solution is hopefully going to prevent, but very hard to measure. That being said, actually, on clinicaltrials.gov, when we registered our trial, we were sort of challenged by how to explain what we were doing and framing it as a feasibility trial rather than an, uh, an effectiveness trial. And actually, our, all of our primary outcomes are about implementation fidelity, which sort of go along with the study that Tor was describing, where we have four parts to our whiteboard, which mirror four core behaviors that have a ton of face validity from a process point of view. And it's sort of like the perceptions of you of a leader kind of are what make you a good leader. And it's highly similar here. There's a couple of key processes that people feel make a good team and are they happening or not? I agree. I'm so glad to hear all of your thoughts. And I'm extremely grateful to all of you for how much help and time you spent with me thinking about this topic.